0: I'm home. This is the Confessions of an Arcade Addict Podcast, an introspective look into video gaming from the classic era until today. Now here is your host, Brian. Hey folks, what's going on out there? Brian here, and this is episode number 16 of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict Podcast. Uh, Gaming-wise, I haven't been doing too much. Um, I'm getting back into arcade emulation in order to do a little bit of research into a couple of games that uh, my memory was fuzzy about. I spent a little time playing playing a couple of them. Uh, They'll be in uh, top tens. Let's see, what else? Um, Haven't been to the arcade in Brighton yet, but I, I plan on taking my godson to... Uh, the arcade uh, tomorrow which would be September 8th and if anything of note happens of course I will take pictures if I make a personal best on a game that kind of thing of course I'll take pictures put it up on the Instagram account Um, if I've got any thoughts about what happened uh, after the arcade run of course I'll record a segment and it will be posted on in and on the road segment I do have a voicemail uh, from Mike Stewart again, and we will get right to that. So here we go.
1: Hey, Brian, this is Mike here. Gosh, you just can't get rid of me, can you? I just finished listening to episode 15 and wanted to call in with my observations on ColecoVision. Um, it was the, actually the first home console I owned. My grandmother was wanting to buy me a TRS-80 because she thought it would help me more at school. But I convinced her to get the ColecoVision because they were supposed to be coming out with the Atom computer system. So I told her, this is kind of an investment, and, you know, the Atom's supposed to be better. So I got it. Um, It came, of course, with Donkey Kong, which was really awesome. Uh, I agree with you that the home Uh, controls that came with the Coleco really stank. Although I did like the 10 keypad part of it, but yeah, the actual joystick part, lame. However, um, I was able to get some Atari uh, joysticks and use those fairly well, at least for the joystick games, but I had uh, Donkey Kong and Venture, which was kind of a, uh, like, um, that, Oh. I'm I'm trying to think of a good comparison. Atari's Adventure would be the closest, but that's like yeah, it's like saying Pong and Space Invaders are kind of the same thing. It was really a whole other set. You didn't engage your icon didn't engage with swords and shields or anything. It was with a bow and arrow, but you would go through these different dungeon levels. In each room you'd go into, there'd be different monsters, whether it was orcs or wraiths or whatever, skeletons. And you'd kill them all and you'd get the gold and then just go on from level to level. And as you wandered around the outside of rooms, there were quote-unquote wandering monsters that were sort of like the ghosts in Pac-Man that moved around to kill you. You couldn't turn them blue or anything, but they were pretty slow, so... As long as you were agile, you could avoid them and get in the different rooms to clear the level. I never got the Atom section of the system, although I did get the Atari conversion, which was very useful because I was on a limited budget, and Atari cartridges, even if they weren't as good as the Coleco ones, were a lot cheaper, so it was easier for me to get those games. But... When the Atom came out, I heard how horrible it was, and so I was able to convince my grandmother to get me a Commodore 64, which was pretty much the end of my console gaming. From then on, I pretty much just got C64 games and ran with them. Anyway, great episode, great show, and uh, I uh, was able to tell one of my friends.
0: And unfortunately, Mike's email cut off right there. I don't know why there's a three-minute message limit of time on uh, Google Voice. But um, anyway, so yeah, thank you, Mike. Um, Yeah, as a matter of fact, while you were talking about Venture, I remember the only time I ever saw a Venture machine and played it was Wizards Arcade back when I was, you know, a teenager or a preteen, I should say. I think I was like 12 or something like that. Or, no, excuse me, no, I was uh, 13. Yeah, I was 13, so I was a teenager. Um, and I played the arcade version. And the arcade version was a little bit more involved than the ColecoVision version, naturally. Um, but the ColecoVision version of was awesome. I loved playing it. I mean, you and I, Mike, we're both died in the wool Dungeons & Dragons players, been playing for at the very least, 25 years, the both of us. Um, and whenever we ever, I saw a video game that fed into that, you know, I was all about it, like I said in the previous episode. Um, the funny part is, is that I was right there with you because I was all about my 2600 and 5200 until my, I pers- persuaded my mother to buy me a Commodore 64C in... Uh, for Christmas 1987. And once she did that, then, yeah, (laughs) you know, my Atari's systems got put away and I very rarely touched them ever again. (laughs) I mean, especially once I started working on a consistent basis and earning enough money to buy games and so forth. Um, you know, I do have a, uh, I do have a, um, home system segment for the Commodore 64 coming. I'm trying to remember what episode it is. Let me consult my uh, little uh, Google Sheets page and what it tells me is that home systems will be in episode 18. So, stay tuned for that. Um, But yeah, I mean... Out of the three systems that had the control pad with uh, the keypads, the ColecoVision ver- version was the best out of the three. The other two being the Intellivision and the Atari 5200. I mean, the Atari 5200 was absolutely horrible, as I've said when I talked about it. Um, but yeah, thank you for the email because I can go on forever about this subject. So I'll just thank you for your thank you for your voicemail, and we'll just move on from there. Like Mike, you can also contact the show if you've got experiences with video games, be they arcade, home, uh, home computers, anything like that. Um, if anything that I'm talking about is captured your interest, you can just drop me an email at uh, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Also, I have a phone number for voicemails like Mike uses. That number is 734-743-2433. Also, I have social media up and running uh, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. On Facebook, just search for Confessions of an Arcade Addict. On Twitter, you can get a hold of me at arcadeaddict_b. underscore B. On Instagram, you can uh, catch, catch me at, at ArcadeAddictBrian. And Tumblr is tumblr.com slash blog slash Confessions of an Arcade Addict. So there are various ways to get a hold of the show and contribute if you're so inclined. So if you have that itch, by all means, scratch it. I'm here for you. So then, with that done, let's move on to the show. And this one is going to be jam-packed with information. Uh, So, let's just get right to it. Let's get to Top Tens. (music) Top Tens. 1986. Okay. 1986, I'm 17 years old. Uh, Going on 18. It was not a very good year for me. Uh, My brother lost his life in the early spring of 1986. Um, And... As a way of coping with that loss, um, I threw myself headlong into a serious arcade addiction to where, you know, I mean, even deeper than what I normally did. Of course, at 17 years old, you know, I'm hanging out, still hanging out the mall, still going to Spanky, still going to Milford Rec with Mark when, you know, our uh, schedules coincide and so forth. But when my brother died, you know, it affected me in ways that I didn't realize until I was much older. And I remember one day, I think I had, like, I remember I went to Bolarama. Like, I think it was, like, about two weeks after my brother died or something like that. And there was this dude there that he and I, we were... I won't say we hated each other, but we were certainly adversaries. And, um, one day I went up there and I went to the front desk and I got like, I want to say like $5 and quarters. And I was just obsessed with playing, uh, ghosts and goblins and trying to beat it. And, you know, I was playing it. I put all of my quarters up on the bezel and I was just going to play that game until I ran out of quarters, you know, and I was blasting, I'm trying to remember what music I was playing. I was playing Iron Maiden, I think, on my Walkman. And so I'm in my own world. I'm playing this game and, you know, I'm up to my neck in it. And this dude comes in, he sees me playing and, you know, instead of just saying, uh, hey man, you know, what do you, you know, what do you listen to? He reached over, and he, you know, he apparently wanted to hear what I was listening to, so he just kind of pulled the the ear pad off my ear. And I looked over, and I saw it was him, and I just batted his hand away, and I returned to the game. And he's like, hey, man, what's your problem? And I said, what is your problem? And that's what started the fight. He and I just started fighting in the game room. Uh, the employees at the bowling alley came and... Uh, broke it up, and you know they banned us from the, you know, from the uh, from the bowling alley for I want to say it was at least a couple of months or something like that. But yeah, I mean, it, like I said, '86 at that point was not a good year for me. But anyway, enough about that. Um, as far as arcades go, you know, most of the arcades are still doing decent business, though nowhere not quite what they were doing even. 2 years ago maybe even 3 um i think at this point um with the continuing continuing rise of the nintendo entertainment system that a lot of people were not you know wanting to go to arcades as much if at all by this point um by this this time they were coming out with really good good games and the Third-party developers were coming out with really good games for the NES, and you know the the NES is just. More, I won't say it killed the arcade, but it certainly did did serious damage to you know the business that arcades were doing. Um, arcades were not closing down yet. I mean, I still had uh, Milford Rex, Spanky's, Arnie's Place. The Trumbull Mall Arcade, you know, and not to mention places like the News Corner that had multiple games in them, which I will talk about (laughs) in the next segment. Um, So, yeah, Um, on this, I think by this time, I think the decline is really starting to show. Um, I was still going to uh, Spanky's a lot, I was hanging out there if I wasn't at the mall, and I noticed that, you know, there weren't a lot of people going in the arcades during the daytime now. Um, even during the summer, um, only on the weekends were the, was the business even resembling a brisk pace. So yeah, you, I was seeing the decline of arcades and so forth at this point. Okay. So getting to my top tens. Um, well, like I said, these are in no particular order. Um, You know, I just think these were the 10 best games of the particular year. This one being 1986, along with honorable mentions. So let's get to it. Uh, First one, Arkanoid. I remember when this came out, this garnered a a whole lot of interest. I mean, a serious amount. Um, Basically, this is a genius remix of Breakout. Um... Breakout, of course, is an Atari game that came out in the uh, 1970s, late 70s, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was, like, 76 when they came out with it. I'd have to look it up. But um, this one took Breakout and gave it a serious twist. I mean, not only did you have the first level of the game, which was pretty much almost exactly like Breakout, and you could beat that game only exactly like Breakout, but also um, there were different elements to affect the speed and the trajectory of the ball that you're hitting with your... <laughs> it, with, they actually created a story for uh, Arkanoid in the game. It was kind of interesting. But, um, yeah, so you had different things to affect it. Um, when you hit bricks and they disappeared, sometimes they would drop a power-up. Uh, they would drop a power-up that slowed down the ball. They would drop a power-up that would turn one ball into three. They would, then they would give the, um, uh, they would the one power-up was the laser, which was the preferred power-up aside from the warp power-up. Um, the laser, of course, you can press the button, hit the button and shoot lasers out of your base to you know destroy the bricks you know om- along with the ball so you could actually clear our stage faster and then later on in the game uh you would get the warp one where a little hole in the side of the playfield would open up and you would you know roll your base over there and it would warp you out and give you bonus points which was really cool but yeah arkanoid I never I was never good at breakout so I you would of course, I'm not that good at Arkanoid. I never was, um, but it was still a really interesting game, and it garnered a whole lot of interest. You know, in the places I saw it, um, Spanky's had it, um, The News Corner had it for a while, um, Milford Rec had it, and I think if it wasn't Milford Rec, it was certainly Connecticut Post Mall. One of the two had it, maybe even both. But, you know, yeah, people were playing this game all the time. Okay, Bubble Bobble. (laughs) This game is my girlfriend's favorite game. Um, And I will tip the hat to Vic Sage, who did a fantastic cover of Bubble Bobble, going from, you know, how you go through the levels to, you know, the secret secret ways of scoring... And, you know, just so forth and so on. I couldn't even begin to improve upon the job that he did. It was that good. But um, this one got a little bit of interest. I think the only time I ever saw Bubble Bobble was in, I want to say, the news corner. I I want to say Milford Rack had it, but I'm not 100% sure. But um, I never was really good at it. It just didn't really capture my interest like some other games, which I will you know, which I will describe not only in this segment, but the next two, um, the bubble wobble just didn't capture my interest. It never really clicked with me. And at this point, um, I was having to be at the very least mildly circumspect about some of the games that I got into. So, yeah, I mean, it bubble wobbles a really good game, but, you know, like I said, just didn't grab, grab my interest. Okay, Super Sprint slash Champions, Championship Sprint. Uh, this is the sequel to the Sprint series of racing games by Key Games, which uh, became or was bought out by Atari. I don't know which. Um, the Sprint, the original Sprint games came out in the 70s, and this one is a, just a more up-to-date version of the of the Sprint game. Um, the premise is the same you uh, can race up race against the computer or you can race up against up to two other uh, human opponents plus the computer on various tracks and the major uh, difference was is that as you're as uh, the person as as you race laps uh, various things would come up, and like these uh, little things for points, and these little uh, wrenches. Now, if you collected wrenches, you could improve your car. You could improve the top speed, you could improve the handling, and you could improve the acceleration. And the thing was is that you had to keep winning these races in order to keep upgrading your car, because the opponents that you go up against as you progress in the game get harder and harder to beat. They accelerate faster, they turn quicker, you know, they're faster at the top end and so forth and so on. So it was a bit of, it was a real true uh, test of skill for the driver because, you know, you had to keep on getting these wrenches and improving your car to keep up with the competition as the game progressed. Okay, Darius. This game was so... This game was beautiful. It was pretty, you know. It's a shooter. Uh, it was a, a horizontal shooter, and it was unique in the fact that it had I want to say two screens. I think it was two screens. Yeah, I think it was two screens. Uh, Joint, you know, more or less joined together, or it was like one screen with a funky effect in it or something. I'm not exactly sure, but. Um, Basically, it's going through various stages and defeating enemies and collecting power-ups and defeating the boss spaceships at the end of the level. Um, Several months ago, I was watching somebody uh, beat Darius and its sequel, Darius 2, which I think came out in either 87 or 88, but... He was beating the original Darius and, you know, doing so handily because he knew, you know, the patterns and how the enemies react and so forth. So he got this really, really high score. And, you know, it was fun to play and it was fun to watch. It was just one of those kind of games. You know, you almost enjoyed watching someone play it as much as playing the game itself. Okay, double dribble. I'm going to say no more about this game because... I've got two segments dedicated to this game. Um, I will go so far as to say this is the sequel to Super Basketball, which I talked about in episode 15. And I have not only uh, information and quite a bit of information (laughs) uh, about it, but I also have a strategy guide in the Time for Some Strategy segment. So I'm going to leave it at that. Gauntlet 2. The sequel to Gauntlet, of course. Um, this one, uh, they have different enemies, and they have these annoying oh god, it's so annoying, these annoying teleportation segment, or parts of the dungeon and, you know, it's oh man, it's to me, it's really annoying, but the thing, the best thing about this game was, is that Um, You could choose the same character, but just have different colors. So if you wanted to have a party with all elves or all wizards or all Valkyries or all barbarians even, or warriors, I should say, you could do that rather than just having to pick one out of the four and whoever gets saddled with the one gets saddled with the one character, I mean. Um... It was a lot more challenging. I mean, it was more more of a quarter eater than its predecessor was, and that's saying quite a lot. But yeah, I mean, I've only played Gauntlet two once, in the arcade. I can't quite remember where it was. I want to say it. It might have been in uh, somewhere in one uh, somewhere in Florida. I think it might have been one of the arcades on Disney property or something like that. But my memory's hazy about it. Okay. Akari Warriors slash Victory Road. (laughs) Okay. I love this game. When uh, my first experience with it was with um, when uh, the Bolarama got it, of all places. Um, It was, it's a fun game. It's a vertically scrolling shooter where you're two Rambo types trying to defeat the ultimate enemy and you go up against other soldiers you go up against tanks you go up against hardened enemy bunkers um, oh goodness uh, helicopters um, just all kinds of things and as you're going along you can uh, power up your weapons You know your gun and your grenades especially your grenades you had to um, in order to get through these various levels which were pretty tough. There were some levels that just were ridiculously hard. <laughs> I mean, I remember I almost beat this game on one quarter um, one time, and I couldn't get through the last level. I, th- I think I was right at the last level, and I just kept screwing up. And not only that, the last part of the game is extremely hard. So, you know, if you... If you even die in that segment, you you might as well well give it up because you may not find any more power-ups. Also, yeah, I'm forgetting myself. You can also jump into tanks and shoot, you know, soldiers and uh, bunkers and things like that. Especially once you've powered up your grenades. Now the grenades turn to shells when you're in the tank. And, you know, the the destructive power is just ridiculous to behold. To the point where the game will kind of pause itself to resolve all the explosions. It's really funny. Okay, Uh, Victory Road is pretty much the sequel to this, except now it's aliens that you're going up against, and it's really weird. I mean... I thought Akari Warriors was the perfect game and then Victory Road comes out and I'm just like, eh, not so much. But, you know, it's not a bad game. It really isn't. You know, it's a lot of fun to play, especially Akari Warriors. I always have fun playing it. Okay, Mania Challenge. This is the sequel to Map Mania. Um, I honestly think that Technos really dropped the ball with this sequel. Um, I was, as much fun as it is, there are only three enemies you or three opponents you have to deal with, and you just face them over and over and over again. Um, the third enemy is basically a mirror image of your own wrestler. Um, oh God, I can't remember his name. Um, but they had like this name, like the the main hero's name is like Tommy Hurricane. And the uh the other guy is like Joe something, and I can't remember what his uh his name is. But anyway, so the uh, play is still the same, although it's more open. Um, you know, and it's kind of hard for me to describe it, but you can do a lot more running uh, moves. You weren't uh, just uh locked into just a running clothesline. You could do a running drop kick, which actually helps you out in a lot of ways. Um and you had to play slightly differently. And you know, it's but the it, the heart of the game is still there and it's still easy to beat. Um I remember one of the last times I played this in the arcade. Um I think it was Spanky's like maybe a couple months before it closed. And, you know, I basically sat there and played it for like 30 minutes before I just walked away from the game. Because, you know, it presented no challenge to me despite the, the title of it. So, yeah, me a challenge. Outrun. <laughs> this game, no matter where I saw it, when it first came out, people were all over it. Um, I want to say this is another one of Sega's, I, I think it's called Mode 7. But I think it's one of their modes, another one of their mode seven games, like, um, uh, like, um, hang on was, and like, uh, space Harrier was, and you're basically in a Ferrari Testarossa racing to the end of, uh, your run, you know, and of course you have the choice of which path you want to take. And depending on what path you take depends on how hard the actual, uh, the actual segment is to get to the end to get to another fork in the road to get to another segment so on and so forth but it was a lot of fun I've never played the sit down version I've only played the stand up and even the stand up is a lot of fun um, even playing it in emulation is just so much fun it's, it's fantastic one of my favorite driving games of all time okay and finally Renegade <laughs> this one um, trying to remember the first time I played Renegade, I want to say it, it was either the News Corner or Bolorama. I'm trying to remember and I can't. I think it was the News Corner, but um, or excuse me, I'm not the News Corner. Excuse me, edit. I think it was Bolorama, but I'm not 100% sure. I know the uh, the News Corner got it at one point, but I think Bolorama had it first. Uh, basically, you're a high school kid um going up against various gangs and various gangs have various weapons that they use and so forth and so on um pl- i played this game in emulation i actually got to the end which is really really hard to play but yeah you had to have perfect knowledge of your controls and how to use how to use the attacks that uh your main character has and it's martial arts based so you have punches, you have you have back kicks, you have jumping kicks, you have froze. Uh when you knock an enemy down you can actually mount them and punch them until they're done and so forth and so on. It's uh it's one of the more fun fighting games, especially in this time. Okay, honorable mentions. Jackal this game was so much fun. I loved this game. Um, try to remember the first time I played. I think the first time I played it was like nineteen eighty nine. Believe it or not, um, the news corner got it, and you know you're basically in a jeep that has um, a gun. You know a mounted machine gun in the back. And a and you basically are throwing grenades. You're basically two soldiers driving this jeep up through various levels to get to the end and, you know, to defeat the uh, enemy, army. Um, and as you're going along, you can... There are certain bunkers that... Oh, I'm forgetting myself. As you're going through these levels, you're rescuing prisoners of war, by the way. Um, and there are some in the game... That are in hardened bunkers that you destroy, and when you pick them up, not only do you get points for picking it up, it upgrades your, uh, you know, upgrades your grenades to missiles, and then uh, as you're continuing the game, it upgrades it again, it increases the range of the missile. Then from there, it uh, the explosion fragments horizontally, and then finally it of uh, the explosion fragments uh in four directions on diagonals. So now you have a wide range you know wide range that you can just kill enemies and you know at minimum risk to yourself. But uh the game is a lot of fun to play, but it it gets really hard towards the end. <laughs> that much I will say. Uh, let's see Halley's Comet. This is a uh vertical scrolling shooter um, basically you're trying to rescue the Earth from being destroyed by Halley's Comet. You're up against all of these enemies and you have to destroy as many as you can because the ones that get past you or scroll off the screen, either for the, to the bottom or to the sides, there's a percentage meter at the bottom right that show that goes up with every enemy that gets away from you. And depending on what the enemy is, it could be various spaceships or um, objects to block your path that you know just basically scroll off the side of the screen or it could be comets sent down from uh, Halley's Comet itself. And every time they go off the screen, that percentage meter goes up and up and up towards 100%. When it reaches 100%, I believe the game is over. If Of course, if you're not killed by enemy fire or running into anything. But yeah, it's an interesting game. It always kind of ramped up my blood pressure playing it. Even so, even so, this evening I, I played it in emulation um, just to remember what the game was about and how the game played and so forth, and I found myself getting a little stressed out playing it. Okay, uh, Joust 2. Of course, this is a sequel to 1982's Joust by Williams, and it's pretty much kind of the same uh game is joust with a couple of differences um there is a transform button as well as your uh flat button and it will change your flying ostrich into a uh i want to say a griffin and um you know each one of these uh each one of these animals has different um benefits for you know for your character um, for your player. So, but the object of the game is pretty much still the same. The, uh, levels themselves are a lot more difficult. It has a Greek theme to it. So there are a lot of, uh, columns and so forth and various uneven, um, levels of, you know, you know, levels where you can sit and and where you can rest your, uh, ostrich or whatever. And, um, some of those can be, uh, pretty annoying obstacles, let's just put it that way. Okay, Kid Nikki. This game I played only a couple of times. I think Milford Wreck had it. If it wasn't Milford Wreck, it was Connecticut Post small It was one of those two. Um, but basically, you're this little ninja kid who's trying to go through and defeat various uh, boss enemies. It is a platformer, side-scrolling, and... Um, it's kind of cute in a way, in an annoying kind of teenage way, but it's it's kind of difficult. I didn't play it much back in the day. Um, I played it a little bit before I started recording, and I was just like, mm. yeah, I can see why I didn't play this game very much. It was a little bit on the annoying side. Okay. Life Force slash Salamander. Uh, Life Force is the uh, United States... Uh, version of the game salamanders the japanese version um basically you are a you are going you are a pilot piloting a ship through a body that is uh riddled with some sort of disease and basically the the i think the whole the body was taken taken over by uh aliens or something like that Because you're going through, the first level is a trip unto itself, because you're basically going through the body, you're shooting these, um, antibiotics, you're shooting the walls of the, whatever parts of the body that actually regenerate and grow back, and they'll kill your ship if you don't get past where you shot the, the point where you shot it, um, There is a video on YouTube of someone who is really good at this game, you know, where he's like doing like multiple run-throughs of this game and, you know, it's, it, it was a lot of fun, but yeah, it could be a little bit, uh, it could be a little bit challenging, especially towards the end of the first, the first, uh, level, shall we say, um, MTV's rock and roll trivia. I remember this game. I'm trying to remember who had it. I think it was uh I think it was Mofa Rec that had this. but basically it was a trivia game uh, about the various uh uh genres of music back there in the mid to late 80s, and it had questions about almost every band you know that uh was either popular at the time or popular in years past. And it was really fun to play. I mean, I play this game all the time in emulation because, you know, it's just to challenge my knowledge of, you know, 80s music. Because I'm a child of the 80s, of course. Rampage. <laughs> Do Need I say anything more about this? I think this game just got a remake, too, not too long ago. Um, You're basically one of three monsters, a King Kong type, a Godzilla type, and I forget what the third one is. Uh, the arcade in brighton has this game or at least the last time i was there they had it uh, they may have gotten rid of it um but you know you're basically destroying buildings for uh you know to get you know go through these various levels you have to knock the building down before the uh enemy soldiers human soldiers kill you in various ways by shooting you and various other kinds of ways um i wasn't really good at this game i really wasn't Um, The first time I played Rampage, I think it was... I want to say it was the Rexall drugstore. I could be wrong. Um, But I don't think it was Trumbull Mall Arcade that had it. I think it was one of the stores in Trumbull Mall that had it. But anyway, moving right along. Rolling Thunder. The first time I played this was at the news corner. Um, This is a uh, side-scrolling shooter... um, you know, in the vein of like uh, Russian attack and things like that, um, where you're a secret agent infiltrating a a uh, secret base of a megalomaniac uh, built, you know, destined, trying to take over the world, and he also has your girlfriend because in between levels, um, there are cutscenes where his where your girlfriend's being tortured. I'm trying to remember, I think towards the end of the game, it shows your girlfriend actually being killed. I mean, this was a pretty brutal game. And it was really hard. And in some ways, really, really cheap. But yeah, it was one of the games that was fairly popular in 86. Okay. Rygar. This game got a ton of attention, I remember. From from the news corner to... um. I want to say call Graf's music, music store in uh, the Lafayette Square, or excuse me, Lafayette Square, Lafayette Plaza, um, and a couple of other places. I think they also had, I think uh, Milford Rec had Rygar, but you're basically a barbarian with a rather unique weapon. It's, uh, it looks more or less like a yo-yo, but, you know, you can basically throw it and kill enemies. Um... It is a side-scrolling, uh, side-scrolling uh, game, and as you go along in the game, you can power up your weapon to uh, do various, do more damage. Uh, the the range of the the range you can throw it is extended, and so forth and so on. I think you can actually uh, add like fire damage to it or something like that. I can't remember. I need to play it in an emulation to find out uh, all the different things, or at least watch a video on YouTube, because I'm pretty sure someone posted, uh, a video of them killing, and just destroying this game, okay, Tokyo, this game was very interesting, oh, where was the first place I saw it, it had to be, yeah, it was, uh, the news corner, actually, that's the first time, first time I ever, uh, saw it, basically, it's a, uh, vertically scrolling shooter, um, where you have a space not a spaceship, but a fighter craft, and you're going through the various, you're going through the various, uh, uh, sections of, uh, Tokyo, Japan, uh, trying to defeat the big enemy at the end of it, um, as you're playing it. It's sort of like, it's, what it's, if I had to describe this game, it would be like Xevious meets, uh, TAC Scan uh, because you can actually um, shoot certain enemies and they will give you wingmen. And if you collect enough of them, then there's a button that you have that transforms your form. It basically puts you in a formation and, um, you can, you know, basically for more firepower for flying enemies, actually there's a particular formation that's good for attacking ground, uh, targets as well. Um, it's a really good shooter, but it's really frustrating as most Japanese shooters can be because they can be extremely unforgiving. Okay, Transformer. This is a game where you are a uh, a transforming fi- in piling a transforming fighter craft and trying to def- you know defeat enemies and you know, so forth and so on, like most shooters of the day. Um, I liked it because this game, it was different. There weren't that many of these games in the United States as of yet at this point. Uh, of course, you had tons of these type of games in Japan with the, um, in sort of in the vein of like uh, Macross, which had transforming uh, mecha and also, you know, uh, series like Gundam and things like that. They had that over there and they had them in like, had games in arcades like this and spades, we didn't have these yet, um, so um, yeah, this one you have to transform. There are just certain parts of levels where you have to transform into one form or another to get past certain levels. And um, game could the game was kind of hard. I think Sega made it, but you know, as with most shooters that came from Japan, they can be re- they can be really hard, as I've said. before. A dozen times before, if not a hundred. Okay, and finally, versus Atari RBI baseball. This game I had <laughs> I won't say adversarial, but I had a rather uh contentious relationship with. Um when I was working at CVS in Fairfield. From, what, spring of 87 until, or excuse me, summer of 87 until spring of 89. Um, I found out that, you know, I found out that the bowling alley across the street had uh, video games in them. So sometimes if I was feeling like doing it, I would take my break and walk on over there and play it. And this is one of the games they had. And I really loved it because it was a simple baseball game, you know. But it could be as complex as you wanted it to be. Um basically what it is is that you uh go up against uh legend you take a legendary team. Uh, let's see if I can do this off the top of my head. Let's see, you have New York Yankees, Boston Red Sox, um Los Angeles Dodgers, um Atlanta Braves, uh Cincinnati Reds, um Oakland A's. Uh, man, I'm missing, like, three or four other teams. But, uh, yeah, so you could... And each one of these teams had their strengths and weaknesses. Like, the Yankees team was almost all all home run hitters, with the exception of, like, one or two players in the lineup. Um, The St. Louis Cardinals, that was another one. That one had a lot of speed and a lot of power, and also had fantastic pitching. And so forth and so on as I found out in emulation the best team that I loved to use was the Atlanta Braves believe it or not because you know as much as fun as it was with the New York Yankees hitting you know trying to hit home runs with everybody they didn't have a lot of speed on the base paths they really didn't most of them were you know they had home run hitters like uh Hank excuse uh, Babe Ruth Lou Gehrig um Mickey Mantle and so forth and so on. All these kind of players. And they didn't have a whole lot of speed. Except for at the top of the lineup. So you basically had to pick. You know the team that suited your style best. And then you you know, slugged it out with the other teams. And it was a lot of fun. I love playing it. I still play this game to this day. You know I just have so much fun with it. It's one of the best. Uh, baseball games. Of that era. Especially. So yeah, those are my top tens with honorable mentions. Uh, any questions, thoughts? You have a game that you think should be on these uh, on the top tens, let me know. I want to hear about it. ArcadeAddictBrian at gmail.com. Okay. Alright, I need to settle in because this is a lot of information. So buckle in folks. This is gonna be a good one. Here comes Are You Experienced?
1: I'm too old for this, hiding in front seats like a teenager. Oh, I think I'm getting too old for this stuff. I'm getting too old for this. Listen, you was born too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. I'm getting too old for this, lying like red arched in the heather chasing other men's cattle. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Maybe you're getting too old for this. What do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this shit. I'm not too old for this shit. You will not. We're not too old for this shit. We're, this shit. Like we're, we're not, not too old for this shit. shit. Yeah. We're not too old for I'm this not shit. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit.
0: I'm not going to buy a hemorrhoid cut. We're not too old for this shit. Are you experienced? Double dribble. Okay, this is one of my all time favorite basketball games that I've ever played. Going all the way back to Atari Basketball back in like the late '70s. Um, this is the sequel to Double Dr- or Excuse me. This is a sequel to uh, Super Basketball, as I've said. And I tried to find information on it in on Wikipedia, but the problem is, is that that information is mixed in with the uh, NES version of Double Dribble, which is a kind of a different game. Um, so I, in a fit of, in a fit of pique, <laughs> I decided to write my own pseudo, uh, Wikipedia entry based off my, uh, experiences with the game. So, um, here we go. Double Dribble is a basketball video game released by Konami in 1986. Like it's predecessor super basketball, you are in control of a five-man basketball team playing against a computer-controlled team or a team controlled by a second player. When a coin is inserted, a credit is indicated on the bottom of the screen and there is a time left indication of one minute and it will show you in where in a quarter you are time-wise. For example, if you insert a quarter when you first turn the game on, it will say credit one, 1 minute uh, first quarter 12 you know from 12 minutes to 11 minutes so it basically gives you a minute of game time so from there uh, you hit the start button you enter your initials like super basketball and then the game starts the gameplay's mark is a marked difference in improvement from its predecessor the characters look better moved much better around the court Like the traditional a traditional basketball game, the centers would come out to the middle of the court, and the referee would institute a jump ball, and the game would start in earnest. Uh, The goal for double dribble is to have scored more points than the computer team by the time, the time you uh, got when you and put in your quarters runs out. So if you had one minute of time, you had one minute to be up by, have more points than the computer then. If you do that, it'll give you this little fanfare, and it will say the game will say, more time. So it gives you another minute, and the game continues, and so on and so forth. As you're going, the game gets harder, and does so very quickly. Um, if the computer team had as many points as your team or more when time runs out, the game is over. The controls are an eight-way joystick and three buttons. One button is to dribble the ball on offense. One is to pass the ball. And wants to shoot the ball on defense the dribble button becomes the steal button the pass button becomes a switch button to switch players uh and the shoot button becomes the jump button Um, if you're on offense to move your player that has the ball you repeatedly hit the dribble button while moving the joystick in a certain direction to pass the ball you move the joystick in the direction of your teammate which will have an aura in your team's color surrounding him and then you press the pass button to shoot the ball which is outside of the lane as opposed to inside it which we'll get to Uh, you press and hold the shoot button until the player reaches the top of the jump then release it if you're in the lane and moving towards the basket and you hit the shot button the screen will change to the player attempting a dunk you will hold you hold the button down until the player reaches the top of the jump and then release it. If your timing is right, you'll complete the dunk. The game will say slam dunk and it will compliment you and then play continues. If you do not complete the dunk, the ball bounces high and far off the rim and then you would have to go and rebound it. Um, Each player moves at slightly different speeds and their jumps are different. Some jump high, while some don't get far off the ground. Some jump when they jump, they rise in the air quickly. Otherwise, others rise more slowly. If you learn their high points, you can master their jump shots, dunks, and also get good at rebounding the basketball, which is important at later stages of the game. If you're on defense, if you're guarding a player, you can try to steal the ball from him by trying to move the ball, move towards the ball, and hitting the steal button. If done correctly, you would steal the ball, and the game will say "nice steal," and then you're instantly on offense. There's a chance while doing this, you could foul the player and send them to the free throw line. There's also a chance that if you steal the ball and you're moving towards the player, which is now the defender, they can actually steal the ball back. I've seen it happen quite a bit. Um, If you need to switch players, you would move the joystick towards the player you wanted and press the pass button and you'll instantly be switched to that player. When the opposing team takes a shot, if you're near to him, press the shot button. It will cause your player to jump and, and possibly block the shot. If the shot, if a shot is missed, move your player under the shadow of the ball and press the shot button to attempt to rebound the basketball. If the player gets fouled, and it can happen on offense and defense, he is sent to the free throw line. Uh, five players will take their oppo- places on opposing sides of the lane with your player at the free throw line. You have a 5 second second countdown to attempt each free throw. A ring starts above the basket, and when you press and hold the shoot button, the ring descends towards the basket. The trick is to get the ring as close to the basket as possible in order to make the free throw. (laughs) A much simpler system than what it was in Super Basketball, that's for sure. Um, As with their jumps, each player's ring descends at a different speed. So be aware of that. Uh, as with a real NBA game, the game is divided into four quarters at 12 minutes per quarter. At the end of each quarter, there's a challenging stage, which is a three-point shootout. As with real-life three-point contests, you have a player attempting five three-point shots at each corner, each ring, and f- each wing, and from the top of the key. You press and hold the shoot button until the player reaches the top of his jump, then you release it. Each shot you make adds one second to your time remaining for a total of 25 seconds. And if you make all of them, one minute is added to your time as well, which is a little bit difficult, but it's, there's a rhythm to it and it's kind of hard to explain, but you know, this way you, if you get all of your shots before the time timer counts down to zero, then you're good. But yeah, you have to do it quickly. Um... A high score of this game, ta- excuse me, a high score table of this game was very unique in that you could get on the high score board by scoring a lot of points, shooting a high percentage either in the game or from the free throw line, grabbing re- a lot of rebounds, dishing out a lot of assists, or commuting the f- committing the fewest number of fouls. That was a genius move by Konami. I really think so. Um... That way, you could be rewarded even if you weren't scoring all that much. But if you were doing the other things, you could actually be on the high scoreboard, which is actually kind of cool. But the thing is also, with to get onto the high scoreboard in the first place, you have to score a, a certain amount of points, depending on what the the how many points the last person on the high scoreboard did. Otherwise, it doesn't matter. Okay play then continues until the player runs out of time while having fewer points than the opposing team or is tied in score okay that's the description i wrote down <laughs> yeah it was kind of wordy but when i would write the all this stuff down then all of a sudden another memory hits and i've got to write that down okay so could to continue my experiences with this game were many i played this game so much uh the news corner had it for the longest time There was another place that had it, but it didn't stay very long because it's a hard game for, you know, just the average person who doesn't know anything about it to figure out. It took me a long time to grok it, that's for sure. But um, I only saw this game in two places in my life. The News Corner had it, and they had it for a very long time, and I can't clearly remember where the other one was. I want to say the Rexall Drugstore and Trimble Mall, but I could be wrong about that. Um, when this game first came out in 86, the NBA was at an all-time high in terms of popularity. You had the teams like the Los Angeles Lakers and the Boston Celtics battling it out for championships, uh, along with superstar players like Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, and Dominique Wilkins, just to name a few. Uh, almost everyone I knew was watching the NBA on television. We were constantly arguing as to who the best teams and players were. So when this game came out, the people were playing it a lot initially. But the difficulty and complexity of the game put a lot of people off as well. Not me. <laughs> you know, not me, that's for sure. I wanted to learn how to play this game really bad. Um, for what I remember, a lot of the people I saw playing it uh, were so enamored by trying to get the players to dunk that their games didn't last long because as much as they feature the dunking aspect of Double Dribble, that's only a small part of the game. Um, They didn't realize it was a true basketball game and it needed to be treated as such. Um I remember there was a time in, I want to say 1988, when there was me and at least... God, what, two or three other guys, we were constantly battling to get on the high scoreboard. I mean, the battles were intense, and they were frequent, too. There, I would play a game, I'd see one of the other guys who was really good at it, and he would put a quarter up, and then he'd play it, and he'd try to get on the board, and so forth and so on. But yeah, it was a really, really tough game to play. Um, my personal experience... Uh, One day in 1988, I'm coming home from work, from work at CVS. Uh, I was taking the bus to go home that day, so I had some time downtown before the number eight bus came to take me home. I had a couple dollars, so I decided to play some games in the news corner to pass the time. Um, I remember playing an unsatisfying game of Defender, and it was. I mean, I think I only got maybe, I want to say like, 9,000 points. And at that point in my life, I was fairly decent at Defender. I could put up 80,000 without even breathing hard. But as I've always said, um, as much as I love the News Corner, and it was a fixture in my life, not just for video gaming, but for various other things as well, um, they had a bad reputation for turning the difficulty level on their video games to the max. (laughs) As soon as they got them in there. Um, so yeah, I mean, I scored like eight, 9,000 points on Defender, and I was, I was, I was pissed. There's no other way for me to say it. Uh, so to wash the bad taste out of my mouth, I decided to play a game of Double Dribble. Um, I don't know what happened, but I just got in this series, this zone. I can't even describe it to this day. I mean, I just remember, it was almost like I was inside the machine, on the court, playing you know, playing this game. And I think the highest score I got in points on double dribbles, like 45 points or something like that. Um, but after about an hour passed by, I did something only Wilt Chamberlain did in a basketball game. I scored 100 points on one quarter. I think it was like 102 or 103, something like that. Um, once I got up into like the 60s or 70s, um... I, ha- I started ki- attracting a crowd, a crowd of, uh, you know, kids who were, you know, go in there and play games all the time. I mean, I think there was like about seven or eight guys just standing around the machine watching me. Um, I mean, I'm telling you, I'm still proud of that accomplishment, and I have the game, you know, I have the game in emulation, I play it every so often, I can't even come close to it, um just to do some research for the notes that I took in this game. I played a few games of double dribble and once I got used to the controls again, I think the highest score I got was like, oh goodness, what? 35 points, 36 points, something like that, which is good considering I haven't played a serious game of double dribble in at least 10 years. But still, you know, it's just one of those accomplishments that, you know, Every any time that the game that we talk about that anyone brings up this game of double dribble, you know, I think last time I saw it was when they were doing uh the arcade years uh uh video series on YouTube and I recommend that series highly because that's another inspiration for this podcast. They basically went through arcade and video home video games going all the way through the eighties. And it was, you know, going into the 80s, into the 90s, and it was really cool. I mean, the guys were funny. Uh, The information was on point. It was great. Yeah, it's called The Video Game Years from Retroware, which is on uh, YouTube. And they go from 1977 until 1989. And like I said, this is good stuff. You should really, really watch this series if you haven't already. It's awesome. You know, some of the memories these guys pulled out of me while they're talking about the various games of a particular year, it was just like, (laughs) you know, mind blowing. But anyway, let's move on to time for some strategy because now that I've described Double Dribble, now I'm going to tell you how to get good at it if you're so interested. So stay tuned.
1: Hey, it's about time, for me a little
0: tragedy. time for some strategy. okay i love double dribble but i'm going to be honest about it it can be hard and sometimes extremely unfair i mean it starts out easy enough the defense isn't great the cpu team misses a lot of shots to start off Um, But to truly master this game, you need to learn how to shoot mid-range shots with consistency. Not three-pointers, and on a side note, I can count the number of times I've made a three-point shot in this game on one hand, and they were all desperation heaves from half court. Um, Not dunks, but short to mid-range shots. Uh, You have to get good at passing because that's the way to get the ball quickly down court. And you also have to develop good instincts about passing when a player is open and knowing when he is open, you know, because there's a difference. Um, and the last thing you need to learn how to do is play good defense, if not great at times. Um, and I will explain why. Um, when the computer imbounds the ball or rebounds it after you miss a shot, you need to do everything you can to get a player on your team to get in front of the CPU player and button match the steal button to try and steal the ball. Um, anytime the, the computer player is running in a straight line, either horizontally or vertically, um, you should come to try to go after the ball. Now, if he's running horizontally from, say, right to left, you want to get that player to go to go right at him sort of like head-on, put your button mashing, the steal button as you get close, and you the chances are you'll steal the ball. And that, will, of course, will start a fast break the other way. Um, otherwise, you want to try to stay in front of him at all times, just like in a real basketball game when you're playing defense. When he goes up for a shot, go up with him by hitting the jump button, and chances are you could block it. I mean, this gets critical when the CPU starts shooting threes, and I'll explain that in a little bit. Um, in my experience, the mid-range shot is the easiest way to score in this game. You might think the dunks are the way to do it, but it's not true. Um, early in the game, the passing lanes are wide enough to drive a tank through, so when you inbound, um, you want to move slightly. As you're going down the court, you want to go on a diagonal to the towards the top of the screen, and then you want to you know hit the pass button because there will be a player down the court right you know, right there, and then you can go from there. Um, more often than not, the pass will reach him. Um, after that, you dribble until you're near the lane, but not in it. Now, if you're open, that means if the CPU player is not in front of you or close to you on either side, you can pretty much go for uh, the shot. Uh, what I usually do is that I will dribble depending on where, you know, how the defense is, but how I will dribble to either side of the lane, and then I will just go like I'm heading out of bounds, heading towards the sideline, but once I'm, like, halfway down the lane, you know, where the lane is, and once I'm halfway down, I'll start my shot. And once you get to the top, you release it, even though your player's going to go flying out of bounds, it will, the shot will usually go in if you, uh, do it correctly. Once again, you have to do it when the player reaches the top of his jump. And then the CPU takes the ball out, play continues. Um, As you progress in the game, especially once you get good enough to regularly stop the CPU from scoring and you can score off those missed shots, you start building leads. Um, To me, anything over 8 points is a big lead in this game. Uh, Even though sometimes I've racked up leads Often I've racked up leads in the teens. Uh, a couple of times I've even racked up like a twenty-point lead, because I know how to position my player so that when the CPU player starts, you know, running down court and they start moving around to try and get to, you know, a spot where they'll take a shot or pass to a teammate to get the shot. I'm usually trying. I'm trying to steal from them at all times, and. If you get good at stealing, yeah, you can pretty much build really high leads. Um, But once you start building up a big lead, say anything over eight points, uh, the computer, it's like a switch gets flipped, and all of a sudden the CPU team turns into sharpshooters and elite defenders. Um, They will come down the court, and if they're given an opportunity, they will start shooting threes, and they will hit all of them you know tons of them at a very high rate um then once you once you know if they hit a shot let's say you know they get a three-point shot on you and then you take the ball out and now they start on the other end of the court they'll start swarming you on defense passing lanes that were open before aren't open now and you have to do a lot of maneuvering and close in passing to get an open for a shot and even then the cpu players will stick to you like glue it's, it can get really frustrating sometimes. And of course you have a 24 second shot clock. remember that. Um, and once they most of the time, depending on how far in the game you've progressed, uh, once they either tie the score or take the lead of uh, their frenzy calms down a little bit. Um, usually you can kind of rebuild your lead if you can um, weather the storm, so to speak. You know, as the game progresses, the defense gets harder to score upon, and you have to do your best to keep pace with them. If you've gotten good at the game, another strategy is to rack to rack a good score is to be ahead by two points. And the C, and more often than not, the CPU won't go Super Saiyan and start raining threes on you. Uh, the defense won't be quite as hard either. Um, the problem with that strategy is that you cannot miss a shot, not one, because if you do um while using this strategy then you've got to start gambling and trying to uh you know make sure that that lead stays at two points and usually you want to give up a two point shot you know on the other end but not a three um as with re- in real NBA games uh if you're down by a point and the game clock is under 24 seconds, you can wind the shot clock down or the game clock down to uh, 20, under five seconds before you start to take a shot. Now that's a risky one too because if you miss the shot, the game's pretty much over. but at the same time can, the game could still be managed that way and that can lead to you uh, getting a really hot, really good score, but it has its risks. Okay, Um, mean, I've played the game long enough to end it, and I put the end in quotation marks, meaning that at the end of the fourth quarter, you have more points than CPU, you win the game. But if you have time left on the clock, the game will start over, the score goes back to 0-0 zero, zero with your remaining time, and you continue playing until you uh, lose. So you can play this game. If you're really good at double derby, you can play this game somewhat indefinitely, as long as you don't, you know, as long as you don't uh, build up the lead so high that the computer team decides to say, well, okay, we're going to turn to the Golden State Warriors on you now, you know, and three-point shots start raining down. Um, there was a time where I got so good on defense, I knew where... The computer was trying to go with its player to try to take a three-point shot. And half the time, I would be right, right there when they would shoot it. And I'd block it and I'd take the ball from them. But that's, you know, me after I played the game dozens of times, if not hundreds. It's a very tough game, but it can be really rewarding as well. So, yeah, that's Double Dribble. You know, that's my description of it. Those are, my, those are my strategies and tips to get good at it, if you're so inclined. So, you have any other thoughts? If you're good at this game and you've got a different way of doing it, hey, you might even be a three-point shooter, <laughs> for all I know. But, if you are and you have this information, by all means, share it. ArcadeAddictBrian at gmail.com Okay, so with that, we are going to go to an on-the-road segment, so stay tuned. Thank you. September 21st, 2018 Time is 2.28pm And this is On The Road As I said in the introductory episode of the podcast On The Road, it can be Almost anything that comes to mind That I think is Worthy for the podcast Mostly based around arcades Sometimes I'll go a little further afield, but most of the time I'll stick to what the show is about. And this one is about dreams. I'm not talking about the dreams you have when you sleep and everything in your brain is working correctly and it's a sign that you're getting a quality level of sleep something that I'm just not familiar with these days but I'm hoping that changes for the better I'm just talking about you know goals not even so much goals just ambitions things I've wanted to do and I mean the strongest ambition I ever had was I wanted to be in a rock band and you know get signed and you know put out albums that kind of stuff well the problem is is that by the time I got to a level of proficiency with the guitar the kind of music I like to play was way outdated I mean I started playing guitar when I was like oh god what I started late I was like what 19 when I when I really started playing and you know I took lessons but most of most of my level of talent is self taught and you know I wanted to play in a heavy metal band you know circa Metallica, Iron Maiden, you know those bands, the bands I grew up with. And the problem was when I moved to Florida, I was all about you know, get with people and jamming and, you know, trying to find some common ground. And by that time, the music scene had changed a whole lot. You know, we're talking the middle 90s when um, alternative music was holding sway. And while I liked Nirvana and Alice in Chains and, and those bands... I really wasn't down with playing that kind of music, because that was sort of a, I hate to say it, but it was kind of a a lifestyle change. I mean, I look at Metallica, who was on top of the world in 1991, and then when they put out um, their next album Load in 1996 they made a really conscious change in not only the way they played their music they also made a change as far as their the clothes they wore and things like that you know and While Load was a pretty decent album, the second one, Reload, you know, I think it was a little too much for their fan base to take, but, you know, that's just, that's just an indication of where things were in the music business back then. That if you stuck to your guns, and you stuck to what you were, uh, what you, what you were used to, and you know who you, who and what you were musically and personally, you were looked at by a lot of people as a dinosaur. You know, just on your way to extinction. And if you changed too much to get with the times, your fans really started accusing you of selling out. But. Anyway, um, so like I said, by the time I got to a level of proficiency with the guitar where I thought of myself as a halfway decent rhythm guitar player, you know, the music scene had changed and there weren't that many people wanting to play, uh, you you know, old school heavy metal from the 80s. It was looked at as something of something, it was just looked at uh, just, you know, just old. You know, everybody was onto the new thing. So um, then, as I got older, I got into my 30s and subsequently going into my 40s. You know, I rediscovered my love for arcades. I never really lost it, but, you know, as you'll hear in future episodes of, like, Arcade Rundown, you know, and things like that, there was a time from, I want to say, 1988, right around the time where my home arcade closed down, and then then my second home arcade spankies they closed down i think in like 1989 or 90. i can't remember exactly i just remember there was a time where i just kind of went away from arcades for a while and um how should i put it you know just i just kind of lost interest you know it just sort of went to a back burner and, you know, there were other things that kind of took my attention at the time. You know, I'm I'm thinking about that time like 1988, 1989, 1990, 1991. That was a kind of a, a little bit of a dark period for me. I mean, you know, I'm thinking about it. 1989, I got my heart broken for the first time in my life. I mean, really, really broken, really bad. I mean, I'll, I probably will. I probably won't relate the story because it's a little embarrassing for me. But so, 1989, got my heart broken. 1990, I lost my best friend, who lost his life tragically. I mean, everybody from his family to everybody who knew him and loved him, um, including myself, um, basically he was murdered and, but the whole thing was is that the people who were more or less involved in his death basically said that it was an accident, but Basically, we all think that he was killed. And unfortunately, in my hometown of Bridgeport in the late 80s, going into the early 90s, you know, that was just, you know, it's just, I hate to say it like this, but it's true, but it was just another black man dying and there wasn't going to be a serious investigation into it. You know, as a matter of fact, the anniversary of his death was, a couple of weeks ago, now that I think about it. That was almost 30 years ago now. Jeez, how the time flies. And um, on Facebook, a lot of people who I grew up around and he grew up around, including his family, you know, they posted stuff, you know, posted pictures with him in it. And, you you know, we all were talking about how we miss him and everything like that and you know my my son is named after him you know so anyway uh, so yeah that happened in 1990 1991 i think late 90 early 91 actually i take that back um early earlier in 1990 um our house got foreclosed upon you know, the house I grew up with and we had to move across the street into a house that was literally half the size. And there were a lot of things going on in my family at the time and it was just not a good time for anyone involved, you know, especially my mom and my grandfather and things like that. Um, Let's see um 1992 was not so bad of a year and then 1993 um my grandfather passed away and just just after he passed away uh is when i moved to florida and so you know with all that going on over that space of like what four years five years you know I mean, I didn't go to the arcades as much. Um, Of course, you know, through that time, of course, you know, I would play games, you know, where I found them. You know, the news corner. Um, I'm trying to remember, I think, in like 1990, maybe 90, it's either, no, it was was 88 or 89. uh, One of my favorite uh, places that had a game room. Uh, the local bowling alley, Bolorama, they closed down, and you know. So, I mean, there were places here and there that had games. I mean, there was a, a video rental store. I can't remember the name of it. You know, my memory, my my brain wants to say it was Showtime, but I, but that wasn't what it was. But they had like pinball machines and uh, video games in there, and they would rotate them out like once every year or so but it wasn't the same of course it's not the same i mean i grew up in you know the the major boom of video games i was a 10 11 12 year old kid when video games ruled the planet you know especially in this country and in japan um so yeah i mean so yeah i mean there was a lot of change going on in my life, you know, and it was kind of kind of rough to deal with. Um, like my buddy Mark, who um, I used to go to arcades with, of course now he's like what? Oh let's see if if we're talking like 1989, 1990, let's see, right then right then I'm at 1990, I'm like 21 years old, about to turn 22, So, I mean, he's like 25 going on 26. So, you know, his interest changed. So, he was like my main way of, you know, going, you know, going places. Because even back then, you know, I was, you know, just, I didn't make a lot of money. You know, I had a job, but it didn't make a lot of money. So, I couldn't afford a car. So... I couldn't get to a lot of these places. I mean, uh, my buddy Chris, you know, he would go with me. He would, you know, he had a car so, you know, if I paid his way uh, to like Milford Rec, like gave him like, you know, $5 in tokens and maybe gave him like $5 in gas, he'd take me. He'd go with me. But at the same time, um, we had uh, the gaming group that I was in you know where we were playing like all kinds of role playing games like Dungeons and Dragons and Shadowrun and BattleTech and Cyberpunk and Star Trek you know the role playing game um and you know stuff like that so you know that's where my main interest was for the most part you know it kind of shifted from video games to tabletop role playing games because, you know, that's what the group was into. And every once in a while, you know, I'd go to Milford Rec or, you know, my, you know, buddy of mine would, you know, take me to Milford Rec, you know, I'd pay his way, you know, things like that. So, yeah, from like 1988 to like 1993 was kind of a, it was kind of, there's kind of a dearth of video gaming for me. Um, I'm trying to think, um, when at that point I still had my Commodore 64, um, at this point I had pretty much every game that I could ever want for the Commodore, you know, I had connections who would hook me up, you know, I'd buy games if, you know, I was really interested, you know, and stuff like that. So let's see from then so I go through all of that and I moved to Florida in 1993 and you know at that point going down there there were tons of arcades so you know there were arcades you know in the area I lived which was the Melbourne Palm Bay area um you know I meet my friend and roommate uh in an arcade and you know I'll probably tell that story once I get around to uh, doing the rundown of the Melbourne Palm Bay area. Um, so that renewed. Then I moved to Orlando because she's, li- you know, she's living in a, a two-bedroom apartment, or excuse me, one-bedroom apartment, and you know, I basically live in the living room. And we, you know, once I get a job and I get myself situated, and I, you know, I'm paying my share of rent and bills. Um, we, you know, because we're both really big video game heads, we start going on arcade runs that really kind of rejuvenated my love of arcades. I mean, like I said, it was always there, but it was at a low simmer when, you know, in that, in that time from the late eighties to the early nineties so but once I got to Florida it really really started to take off so um okay I'm at a stop so I'm going to pause right now I'll be right back okay I'm back let's see so yeah um yeah my love for arcades not just video games because that love's always been there since I was a kid and that's never gone away but my love for arcades—it's just the experience. It's the sights, it's the sounds, it's the feel of the controls in your hands. You know, it's—it's it, it's an experience that you can't quite emulate. I mean, I have a lot of video games in emulation, as does a lot, as do a lot of people. And my whole thing is—is is that. It's they're great to play when you can't get to an arcade for whatever reason, or there wasn't one in your area. But yeah, I mean, when you walk into a legitimate arcade, you know, I mean, the lighting is just right. You know, all the all the you can hear the game hear some of the games from way across way across the arcade. Um, almost all of them work. And, you know, as an added touch, there's 80s music playing, you know, over the speakers, you know, to add to the experience. There's nothing like that. You know, I mean, I mean, yeah, I'm an old guy. And but that's what I grew up with. And when you had when you were in a legitimate arcade, when you were a kid, when I was a kid, I mean, there was just very few experiences matched that for me. I mean, one of the best experiences I had... Just, I'm thinking about it from, like, the time I was, like... Oh, I want to say, what, 11? Until I was, like, what, 13, 14? Was when the James E. Strait shows came to town. And that's going to be in the Arcade Rundown, by the way. Future episodes. Stay tuned. I'll give it a full review from everything I remember. But... I remember... It, I mean, it was this huge, I remember it, I mean, of course, James E. Strait shows is a traveling circus you know, they basically load everything into trains and they go hither and yon to places you know, where they, you know, set up shop for a while and, you know, it's, like I said, the circus comes to town so, I remember the first time I saw they had an arcade tent I mean, I about lost my shit I almost lost my mind because I was just like, oh, my God. And I'm trying to remember what year I first saw it. I think it was 79. Yeah, it was 79. I'm pretty certain of it. Um, And so they had Space Invaders, Asteroids, Astro Blaster. You know, they had all of the games of the day. And they had multiples they had multiple machines of these games. It was awesome. <laughs> it was great, and I just remember just completely the first time I remember. That's where I found a Sega game, not too many people know about, called Space Tactics, and it's a it's it's a great game. It's an awesome game. It's almost like taking a first-person perspective. It's almost like Space Invaders from a first-person perspective. It's awesome. I love that game. It's, like, one of my favorite Sega games of all time, and it's it's little known, unfortunately. And that's the first place I found Defender, and just, wow. You know, it was awesome. But anyway, I'm getting a little further afield. Um, So, like I said, I've always had the love for video games, but I've always... Wanted and loved the arcade experience. I mean, it, it, it's one of the reasons why I hung out in the Trumbull Mall arcade so much, and why I would hang out in Spanky's so much. Because it was it, even if I didn't have money to play the games, it was the atmosphere that I loved. I mean, when I'm when I made the intro for this podcast, where you know. Um, you know, it's you know basically me getting out of a car, walking into an arcade, and just taking a deep breath and saying that I'm home. That's how I felt almost every time I walked into an arcade. You know, especially when I was a kid. You know, that's why I love the arcade Brighton because that it takes me back to that time. You know, as I tell all of my friends who, you know, I talk to it about it. It's like just taking my inner twelve year old, let him run around for a while you know, go into the arcade. But anyway, um, so getting back to my main point, um, so in you know, so like I said when I moved to Florida in 93, when I moved to P- Melbourne and Palm Bay, there were a couple of arcades around and I found some a kindred spirit where we would go around Melbourne and Palm Bay and look for look for arcades and look for machines. I mean, some of the best experiences I had was at the Circle K, you know, on, I, yeah, on Palm Bay Road, just before you get into Melbourne, it's either just before or just after, I can't remember, but it's a Circle K, and they had a Street Fighter 2 Champion machine in there, and we would play that game constantly. We would play that game a lot, tons. Um, the, Melbourne's, the Melbourne mall had an arcade in it and I remember when I was working down the street from the mall you know either on my break or uh or going or on my way home I would stop there you know and play a couple of games and you know hang out in the arcade for a little while but that was a problem in the early 90s is that you know there wasn't that much popularity for arcades or at least not down there because there were there were hardly anybody in there even on the weekends i'd go down there on the weekends and just you know go and play some games but there weren't that many i mean it was kind of it was kind of a frustrating situation for me until you know um I, under circumstances that I won't go into, I was forced to move out of the house I was paying rent in, and I had to move up to Orlando to, you know, move in with my roommate uh, right around Thanksgiving of '93, and that's when everything changed. It was like, you know, I was living with somebody who had a lot of the same interests as me. You know, we had interest in art, role-playing games in video games, home video games, and, um, you know, and arcades. We loved it. You know, we go to the Fashion Square Mall. We There was an arcade there. we go to the floor the mall on the south side. There was an arcade there. Um, we would go to the Fun Machine, and these arcades, I will review an arcade rundown. Stay tuned. And we would we would just make we would go on arcade runs at least oh my god i mean at one point once we were both, once we both had you know halfway decent jobs where you could pay the bills and pay the rent and still have money left over you know to screw around with you know yeah we would go on arcade runs you know and some of the arcade runs we would go on were just I won't say legendary, but they were fun. I mean, we would take, like, a, we would get, like, a day off. We both have a day off from our jobs. And we would be in the arcade from, I want to say, like, 12 o'clock in the afternoon until, like, 6, 7 o'clock at night, you know, just playing games. And by this time, because we were really both good at certain games and we would push each other to get better at those games we would we could make five dollars last i mean just some of the runs i'm just thinking about it now and i'm trying not to go into it too much because i don't want to bury the lead on arcade rundown where i'm going to go into as much detail as i can remember but yeah, some of the runs we'll go on were awesome. I mean, we would go to arcade. There was an arcade over by um, University of Central Florida we would go to every once in a while. Um, there was an arcade on the north side of Orlando. I know the place, I just can't remember the name. I know I have it in an arcade rundown and I will go into it. But that was another place we'll go to every once in a while. And it was great. I mean, from 1993 until 1996, when my roommate and I had a major falling out, um, that's what we would do. And that wasn't all we would do. We would go on. I mean, at the time we were huge Dragon Ball Z heads. She got me into that like immediately, you know? And, uh, this was, this was back when people were, um, Bar, uh, you know, loaning out and exchanging and copying tapes from Fuji TV in Japan back in the 90s, early 90s. This is long before Dragon Ball Z officially came to the States. And I want to say, oh, God, what year did they f- start coming? I think it was 97. It's either 97 or 98. But so we would take trips to... Um, this uh, Japanese store in Tampa. You know, we just get in her car, and we'd drive down I-4 to Tampa, and we'd go down there. And we would hit a couple of RPG stores on the way back, too. There was one in Lakeland that I loved that had a lot of stuff that, you know, I would buy if I, you know, if I had the money. But anyway, so, from 1993, 1986, that's when the dream kind of started and i'm talking about owning my own arcade and i don't mean like you know um john john's arcade who has his stuff in his basement he has a damn good array of machines or break from arcade impossible for that matter i'm talking about actually you know rent leasing a store space and putting like at the very least 40 to 50 machines into the space and calling it an arcade, you know? That was, the, that was when the dream started, in that space sometime. I don't know exactly when, but at the time, you know, from 93 to 98, or 93 to 96, when my roommate and I are just flying around Orlando, finding arcades, and playing games, and having a whole bunch of fun, you know, um, You know, from, oh god, 93, 98, so that's 24 to 27 for me. And so, you know, in that time, you know, I'm just having a blast, you know. I'm just having fun with, you know, my roommate and I are just having a blast. It was awesome. I loved it. I missed those times, and I missed my roommate because her and I, at that point, we were really good friends, and it was just sort of like, it was the easiest thing in the world having her as a roommate because we just got along on so many levels. Um, But anyway, moving on from there, um, that's when that dream started where I wanted to own my own arcade or at the very least I wanted to work in slash manage one and you know everything in in that time it was fine then all of a sudden in I want to say right around oh I want to say like late 95 maybe going into 96 all the arcades in Orlando started shutting down um Fun Machine shut down, which was one of the big ones. You know, Fun Machine shut down, there was an arcade downtown in, um, you know, arcade downtown that was really good that shut down. Um, uh, The mall arcade started shutting down because they weren't making enough money to run, which was probably the the, the reason why my home arcades shut down so you know that was pretty much why and we and so yeah it was and again there was starting to be a dearth of it i mean there just weren't that many places in orlando aside from going on disney property you know and that was a major you know a major undertaking especially when you know i still, you know, it, the, the thing was that, yeah, I still didn't have a car at that point. You know, I didn't get a car until I moved up here to Michigan in 2002, 2003 right in there. That's when I finally got a car but, you know, um, so that's when the dream happened, the dream really started you know, being, you know, taking place in my taking place in my head and you know i loved it you know i love the idea i mean i mean right now i mean full disclosure i work three jobs you know i work three jobs right now you know just trying to keep the bills paid and trying to keep food on the table you know and keep clothes on my back and you know keep clothes on our backs um and right now my bill situation is pretty pretty bad. And you know, by the way, this isn't me asking for any sort of support if the podcast, you know, grows to the point where I can where I can actually maybe maybe monetize it. You know, that's one thing. But for now, you know, no, this is just, you know, a passion project. This is something that I've been wanting to do for probably over a year, year and a half. So this isn't me asking for money, um, but the real—that's the reality of it. I mean, my money situation is it's to the point where you know I have to seriously set aside, you know, see about setting aside, you know, twenty dollars to go up to the arcade on a Sunday and have lunch either before or afterwards. And there were some issues going on with my car that have since been taken care of. And that also played into it. Because if it was up to me, i go to the arcade at least twice a month. If it was up to me. You know. But, you know, working three jobs, which also means having to sacrifice my weekends sometimes and my main job is pretty physical and it takes it out of me, you know, full disclosure, as I've said, you know, I'm 49 years old, I'm gonna be 50 in a couple of months. And, you know, the days of me working a 10-hour shift and, you know, um, and, you know, jumping on my bike and riding from work to downtown to a local middle school where a bunch of people in neighborhood get together to play basketball, playing basketball for another three hours, getting back on the bike, going home, and you know and, you know, and calling it a night, those are over. I'm just old now. So okay, I'm at another stop, so I'm gonna pause it here. Be right back. Okay, I'm back. So, yeah, I mean, it's, I've always had that desire to be an owner of an arcade, and I only wish it could be now, because arcades and barcades are making a comeback, because the best, the best business model for running an arcade in this day and age is just to charge a flat rate and put all the machines on free play you know uh, Galloping Ghost Arcade in Chicago does it the arcade in Brighton does it even though they kind of have tiered pricing depending on whether it's Friday, Saturday, or Sunday um, but yeah it, that's just the best way to do it now you know, I mean, that's one of the criticisms I have about, uh, I have about, um, Pinball Pete's is that, you know, they're still charging, you know, they still, you know, games are still 25 and 50 cents. Some of them are a dollar, like the modern ticket games and so forth. But I mean, I like games like uh, I like the Space Invaders game. I like the Galaga game. It's it's of it's just a new twist on a classic, which is awesome, you know. But there is still part of me that kind of uh, balks at paying a dollar for a game, and the way those games are are constructed, the difficulty level ramps up really fast, especially Space Invaders, you know, Space Invaders and Galaga, you know, because they want you to play for a certain amount of time and for a certain amount of tickets and, you know, that kind of thing. But anyway, um, yeah, I mean, that's the best way to run an arcade nowadays is to just charge a flat rate. I mean, probably the sweet spot is $10, you know. Pay $10, you know, put a, a a wristband on or something like that, like the arcade does, and just play to your heart's content. Play until you can't or don't want to play anymore. You know, and that's something that I really, I would love to run an arcade like that. You know, I mean, as good as the arcade in Brighton is, it can be, it can still be better, you know. But I'm just happy there is just a full-blown, legitimate arcade in the area. Um, there are some places in Detroit that I've heard about that I want to check out. But like I said, that that's a whole day of planning. <clears throat> Excuse me, day of planning. Where... I'm gonna need the money to do it, and I have to make sure that my other two jobs are taken care of um, before I can actually take the day for myself. You know, I try really hard not to do that, especially having, you know, a four-year-old running around. You know, he needs attention and time with daddy too. So, you know, it's just one of those things where you kinda have to, you can't be so selfish. I mean, Getty Lee said it in, uh, the rush documentary, you know, he said it when, once you start having kids, you can't be so selfish. You just can't. And it's true. It's so true, you know, cause I'm sorry. I want my kid to grow up to be a, a well-adjusted member of society, you know, and that all comes down to being a, being a proper father you know what i mean so anyway um so yeah i mean i understand that it is a major financial undertaking to start an arcade from the ground up first thing you have to have are the machines and you have and those machines have to be in proper working order and finding someone who can do that you know can repair video games like that you know those guys there aren't that many of them anymore. I mean, sure, you can get somebody with, you know, you know, who's, you know, a, who's really decent with electronics and just, he can probably do a, a really good job at it. But yeah, those, those jobs aren't exactly how they were in the 80s when it was a boom where computer programming and electronics repair were really in demand back in back in that time it's not quite as prevalent as it was but so you know i'm just thinking about it you know i've thought you know i've thought about it it's like first you have to have the machines you know buying legitimate arcade machines that in itself is an expensive prospect I mean, to get good machines in, you know, halfway decent repair or getting a machine that just needs some love and attention and fixing them up, you know, it's, you know, it's time and money. It really is. It is. And, you know, yeah, it's, it's a little tough. little little hard to deal with. You know, I'm, you know, I'm thinking in order to, uh, for the way I want my arcade to be, and since we're talking about a dream, you know, I'd have to win the lottery or come into a lot of money, you know, and be able to do this investment and not feel it because, you know, if you break even, especially in this day and age, if you break even, you're doing great, you know? I mean, I'd love to talk to the owner of Galloping Ghost or talk to the owner of the Arcade Brighton and just, you know, talk to him frankly about numbers and, you know, how much they may, you know, how much they have. I'm pretty certain because I went up there to try and apply to, for a weekend position and I'm pretty certain that, you know because i think it's the owner's son who runs it who you know just runs you know who operates the place um he doesn't i'm I'm pretty sure he doesn't make a lot if he makes anything at all you know because i'm just thinking that they pull in pretty decent money i mean not great money but decent money over the weekends they they're The only thing about the arcade Brighton, and I'll probably say this again when I do an arcade rundown on the place or a review, is that the only two things that are holding that place back—they need a better location and a bigger, bigger place. I think that's the only thing holding them back. You know, so you know, getting you know, being so, I would think that in order to get like. If I wanted to if I was gonna run this arcade the way I want to, it would be at least a hundred machines. A hundred. Ranging from stuff in nineteen seventy-six all the way up to oh god, I wanna say God, where would I stop? I think I'd probably stop somewhere around two thousand. Somewhere around there. Maybe get some newer machines, but no. I mean I mean, the Arcade and Brighton, they've got... Oh, God, I can't remember what it's called. But it's basically the, a DC fighter uh, with, like, Superman, Batman, The Flash, that kind of stuff. It's called Justice something, I think. I can't remember exactly what it's called, but that I think that's, like, one of the newest machines they've gotten there. You know? But, anyway, so if I wanted to do this the way I wanted to do it... You know, we'd have to have like a really good, large size storefront. Not large, you know, because I'm think if I'm thinking large, I'm thinking something like Milford Rex, which was like, oh God, I want to say like fifteen, ten to fifteen thousand square feet, something like that. And you know, because at the height of Milford Rex' power, they had at least, oh, I'd say at least. 200 machines in the place. You know, I'm talking about in right at the height of their powers. I'd say like between the years of 1983 and 1986, something like that. You know, when they decided to diversify and not diversify, but they had they put in batting cages, they put in a go kart track, they put in all this, all these different things to draw more people in and you know make more money which is, you know, a smart thing, of course. And there wasn't, to my knowledge, there wasn't another place like Milford Rec in the region. I think you'd probably have to go, like, up around Hartford someplace for another, uh, for another, uh, arcade like it. I mean, because Spanky's was... Fairly, I would say, if I wanted to do an arcade, it would be like the size of Spanky's. Spanky's was basically... Was it? Yeah, it was like sort of like an... Uh, it was like a car dealership. A small car dealership. Because you had the parking lot, which had plenty of spaces for parking. And it was like two storefronts you know i think i think that's what spanky's was back in the day i think that's what it was when spanky shut down it became like this medical uh center small medical center but it was basically two storefronts and spanky's had i want to say at the height of its power spanky had like 150 machines something like that I mean I, would, I mean, I would love somebody, if someone listens to this podcast who was around in those days and has information, I would love to know how many machine Spankies had, but they had a lot. You know, they had, you know, I remember in the early 80s, like 1981, when Ms. Pac-Man was just ruling the roost. You know, every place that I knew back in the day had of his pac-man machine but spanky's had like three you know that's you know you're in a serious arcade you know especially back in those days if they had more than two they had two arcades it was it was a it was a decent arcade but if it was serious they had like three i mean there's a place in wildwood new jersey i went down to in like 1990 or 91 where they had, no, it was 91 now that I think about it because Street Fighter II had just come out. Um, In 1991, I went down there and they had four Street Fighter II machines. I want actually, I wanna say it was five, but it was at least four. I know that. I think it was five, but it was at least four. But yeah, Sirius Arcade has at least like three of the brand new games, of the brand new game. Like, I I knew that the people who owned the Trumbull Mall Arcade were kind of serious in 1980 when they had two Pac-Man machines. Now, of course, they were, there were, they were hack machines, which I'll talk about in, um, another, uh, in, you know, in, like, I think the next episode of Storytime, you know, at this point, only episode one is out. I'm going to do episode two and try to get that out before the end of the end of September. It's going to be a little while before you hear this, but not too long, I hope. Um, but anyway, so if I want, I would if I was going to do this, I'd want uh, a storefront the size of Spanky's, which was basically like two storefronts put together, um, and around the perimeter, outside. Of course, the the machines would line the perimeter around the windows, you know, around there and around the insides of the rows. So, you know, so yeah, I would think about at least 100 machines, at least 100, maybe 150. If it was a really good location where I think business would really take, really do well, at least to the point where you could pay for a couple of employees and pay, you know, the power bills because that's the other thing about arcades is that these older machines, they suck up a lot of power. They do. I mean, I remember when I was living in Orlando, there were a couple people who actually, you know, of course, there were people I knew from here, you know, here and there who had like, you know, full-size arcade quality pinball machines or, uh, arcade machines in their house. And they would unplug them when they weren't in use because those things draw a lot of power, a lot. So if you're you just, just as a rough, a rough estimate, I would think that just an arcade in such a storefront, you'd probably do like two thousand three thousand dollars a month in just power never mind the rent so you're figuring in order to break even i'm figuring you have to pull down about ten thousand dollars a month you know just to kind of break even just to keep the lights on keep the water on you know and pay a couple of employees maybe that kind of thing but anyway um so yeah you know so 100, 150 machines. And see, I wish that I could go to a place like Chicago, like a major city. I mean, Chicago's Arcade Central these days. I've I've said it a million times. I'm probably going to say it a million more. I mean, I've got ambitions about uh, going to Chicago And hooking up with Jack Danger and him taking me, you know, on like a weekend or a couple of days during the week and just going through various arcades in uh, Chicago and, you know, just, you know, being on his stream and just saying, hey, you know, you know, just hanging out with him and whatnot, you know, doing that kind of thing. Um, go, you know, hanging out with Greg from Arcade Impossible, who streams every once in a great while. You know, he has a podcast himself, you know, that he does every so often. But, you know, and going with him and going to you know, going to Gallop Ghost and going to, you know, level two fifty seven and all these other arcades in the Chicago area and just know playing games to my heart's content and hanging out with him um you know i want to go to fun fun spot in new hampshire which is from what everybody has said that's hands down the greatest arcade in the country the best arcade in the country um yeah i've got ambitious to do all these things but unfortunately um the way things are, it's just not going to work, not going to happen right now. Maybe in the near future, you know, I'm trying to position myself to where, especially once I get my ass out of debt, (laughs) you know, I want to be able to do these things like, you know, once a month or once every other month, you know, and maybe even do like a, uh, live from, this arcade or that arcade kind of segment for this show and maybe talk to the owner or interview the owner and that kind of thing. And, you know, maybe get with like, you know, John from John's Arcade. He lives in Massachusetts somewhere. You know, I would love to just, you know, visit these guys who have the YouTube channels and do streaming, you know, and just, you know, just, pick their brain and talk to them about you know video gaming and that kind of stuff you know and just do that for the show you know and yeah I do plan on doing interviews I do plan on especially if this podcast sort of you know not takes off but just sort of you know gets rolling and gathers momentum that's one of the things I would love to do I would love to like talk to like you know Eugene Jarvis, you know the man who created Defender and Robotron, you know, and talk to you know legends in the industry, you know guys who were you know really really looked up to in those days. I would love to argue, you know talk to them now and talk to them about where game, how gaming changed over the last 40 years you know, and where it is now and what they're doing now and things like that. I'd love to do that. You know, that's just, that's the ambition I have for this podcast. Um, but anyway, getting back to it, I keep getting distracted. This is the way my mind works, ladies and gentlemen. It's just, I get on a topic, I try to stay on topic, but something else comes to mind and I expound upon that for 15, 20 minutes or however long. But anyway, um, So I would think that, I would think in order to break even, you probably have to make like 10, 15 grand a month, you know, in order to keep the lights on, pay a few employees and, you know, pay for the upkeep of these games. Because that's the other thing. Um, A lot of these games are 20, 30, 40 years old, 40 years old plus in some cases. I mean, look at it this way Pong came out in what? 72. So Pong is 46 years old now. <laughs> as funny as that sounds. You know, you know, having a Pong machine and keeping that thing running you know is that's just crazy to me. And having somebody who has the electronics savvy in order to keep these games running, that's a that's an undertaking unto itself, really. You know, just being able to keep these games up and running. I see it at the arcade all the time. Where, you know, some of the older games, you know, they just You know, they're not working for whatever reason or not working properly. And <clears throat> Excuse me. One of the things as, you know, an arcade junkie is that you know that one of the things that kind of gets under my skin is just running a game in an arcade that's not working properly. You know, unplug that thing, get that thing fixed as soon as you can. You know, but that's just me. And so, if I was if I was going to run an arcade, you know, yeah, it's just easiest to do it that way. Just charge a flat fee. I mean, the other thing, uh oh The other thing that I would like to do in that way is kind of do what uh, Vic Sage does. He works at an uh, arcade in, is it, no, it's not Mississippi, it's not Alabama. Is it Arkansas? I know it's down in the south somewhere. I'm just having a brain fart, but Vic Sage works at, but he works in arcade, but it's a museum. And I think all the machines are on free play. You pay one fee, and you go in there, and you can just play games to your heart's content. I mean, they've got uh, not only arcade, an arcade, but they also have displays for uh, home video games and things like that. I'd love to run that as a secondary thing and actually you know, run it as a museum. You know, I would love to do that. So, you know, you know, it's an ambition, you know, I mean, as it turns out, you know, as I'm getting older, you know, it's more about doing what you love. And I know it sounds trite. I know it sounds like a cliche, but it really is. It's that's what it's about. You know, doing what you love. I mean... I've been doing a, I've been podcasting since 2010, and, you know, I love doing that, you know, I love getting together with the guys on my other podcast, which is Thaco's Hammer, you know, getting together with them, and, you know, shooting the bull before the podcast, and then finally saying, well, we're gonna do the show or not, and then we end up, Doing a show, which is on average about two hours, you know, maybe two and a half, somewhere in there. On average, about two hours, and just doing it that way. And you know, we've been friends for almost that entire time. You know, actually, I met one of my podcast mates um, earlier this month for the first time because we're you know scattered in the four winds. I mean one guy lives in Pennsylvania another guy lives in Oklahoma another guy's based out of North Carolina which reminds me I need to text him and ask him how things are going with him hopefully they're going halfway decent cause god only knows North Carolina got just swamped by that hurricane which sucks out loud but anyway um so, you know, yeah, we've been friends for almost the entire run, and I love do I love podcasting because this is the only real time I get to talk about what interests me and, you know, what I'm really into and putting it out there on the internet for people of like mind to find. <laughs> Poet, I didn't know it, but so, yeah, I mean... We'll just see, you know, hopefully, you know, if you know, I would love to be able to get you know, earn that kind of money. You know, not you know, earn not not even so much earn it, but to, you know, have that kind of money in order to make this kind you know, in order to make this dream a reality. Or as Rush says, drag this dream into existence. I would love to do it. But, you know, the chances of hitting the lottery are pretty damn small. And it's like, what, one in over 10 million at the very least? God only knows if I hit that, yeah, I would do it. Hell, if I could make it work... I would just, I'd make i cha- I'd make a chain of arcades across the country, because that's something that I've noticed would probably play in a lot of these, a lot of the smaller towns that I drive through on my delivery route. Is that, I mean, let's take Jonesville, Michigan, for example, which is you know a small. Oh, hold on, now I got a call from my shop. Hold on. Okay, I'm back. So, I mean, yeah, that that would be, like, the big dream. If I could just, like, make a chain of these arcades and have them in, you know, big cities and small towns and everything in between, say, like, ten stores and just rotate games in and out of each store. That's what I would love to do. I would love to have, like, a small chain like the Fun Machine. Because they had two locations in Orlando and both stores were pretty big. You know, that's what I, that's my, that would, that would be awesome. And and to make it work. Because like I said, it's like arcades and barcades are coming back now. You know, barcades especially because, you know, you got people, you know, in bars, you know, drinking alcohol You know, playing games, especially the older crowd Who remember these games when they were a kid or a teenager or whatever And, you know uh, The barcades in Chicago, I mean, are pretty successful And I think the barcades in Detroit From what I read in the news and a couple of things I've heard They're doing pretty well, so yeah That's one of the things I'm going to do I'm definitely going to do that. It's going to take a little while, but I'm going to keep this podcast going. And we'll just, you know, hopefully I can get out and about, you know, once a month or once every other month and, you know, say, oh, here's a review from this place or here's an interview with the owner from this place and, you know, give it to you guys. And hopefully. With time and effort and dedication, we could turn this podcast into something really cool. Maybe, and you know, this is a pretty big maybe, but maybe even do it a la Jack Danger, where you know, I take in the evening, you know, a couple of times a week. I mean, I don't think I could really get away with doing it five nights a week or six nights a week like Jack does and going to various arcades or posting up in like the arcade in brighton and just playing one video game or a couple video games with a podcasting rig you know i don't think i could do that but if i could and i could certainly get the equipment if i could i would and put it on twitch and just go from there and you know get a listenership get a following still do the arcade, you know, still do the podcast, every, you know, do the podcast once a month or twice a month and turn it into something a little more than a passion project, you know, meet, you know, meet you guys, you know, the listeners to the podcast or watchers of the stream or both, you know, invite them out, have little get togethers and that kind of thing, you know, just build like this, I want to say network. What's the only word that's coming to me right now? You know, a, a community. That's what it is. Build a community. That would be like the main goal. That would be a fantastic goal for this podcast. But that will take months, if not years. And I'm willing to put forward the work. And hopefully, you guys can listen and you know maybe if it goes down that road contribute and you know make the you know help make this podcast bigger and hopefully something that we can all we can all enjoy. You guys enjoy listening and possibly watching it as much as I love recording and streaming it. So we'll see. So anyway I'm just about back to the shop. Um I've basically been ranting and raving for the better part of an hour. I'm probably just gonna put this out as a uh, podcast in and of itself, just to kind of keep the podcast time down. I don't wanna make it more than an hour and a half, and I'm already eaten into that time with this on the road uh, segment. I think if I Edit it all down, it'll probably get around an hour. Get about an hour, and that's where I want to keep it for now. So anyway, this is Brian, and this has been On the Road for Friday, September 21st, 2018. Until next time, good gaming, take care, au revoir. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music is provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at Incompetech.com. If you wish to contact the show, you can drop an email at arcadeaddictbrian. that's all one word, at gmail.com. We also have a voicemail number for the show. It is 734-743-2433. Until next time, this is The Confessions of an
1: Arcade Addict Podcast.